Welcome to the Geneva Center for Security Policy Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Vallée, Associate Fellow in the GCSP's Global Fellowship Initiative. For the next few weeks, I'm talking with subject matter experts to discuss issues of peace, security, and international cooperation. So thank you, dear listeners, to tuning in once again. Conflicts and other disasters, both man-made and natural, can still blight the lives of many. Hence, the common interest we have at the GCSP and other security-dedicated institutions to find solutions to these. And I must say, one of the most innovative and original of the seekers that I've encountered at the GCSP is my guest on today's podcast, Dr. Ramamani. Dr. Ramamani is a transformative leader, peace builder, poet, performance artist, whose life, work, and art are devoted to a human and global transformation. She's originally from India. Ramamani is a political scientist and a French literature graduate, educated at Bryn Mawr, John Hopkins Universities in the USA, and at Cambridge University in the UK. She is the founder of Theatre of Transformation Academy, whose purpose is to champion and support the creative power of humanity to shape our shared future. She's the convener of the Enacting Global Transformation Collaborative Initiative at the University of Oxford Center for International Studies, which seeks to redefine paradigms of power and shape creative and human responses to current global crises. Most initiatives are grounded in the theater of transformation art form and methodology developed by Rama, based on her 30 years of expertise in peacebuilding, leadership, and governance, with inputs from diverse scholars and decision makers. So Rama offers tailor-made transformative performances to ignite diverse audiences to become active co-creators of our shared future. She teaches transformative leadership based on this methodology to global decision makers, including the UN Senior Leaders Program of the UN System Staff College and at the Geneva Center for Security Policies courses for senior diplomats and policymakers. So as you can see, she leads a very busy life in art and teaching, so we're very grateful to welcome her to this week's podcast. Welcome, Rama. Thank you so much, Dr. Valet. Paul, it's great to be at GCSB and talking on this subject dear to my heart. Well, I'm sure you're going to do a great job of it. My first question uh, is, of course, a, a very intriguing one, which uh, I probably asked myself when I first saw you perform at a GCSB course, which is how does a, uh, do you as a, a global security policymaker and practitioner and scholar get interested in the role of arts and culture? Oh, I'm glad you asked that, Paul, because I was shocked when it first happened to me. And I think in the beginning, I dismissed my own intuition that art matters. Because, you know, when you're in the heat of working on global security, especially when you're on the ground working in conflict areas, I mean, the last thing you have time or interest in is what we think of as the soft stuff, you know, things like art and culture. And I remember only too well the many times whether, you know, I was in, in Afghanistan on a global policy um, fact-finding mission and would speak to the heads of, of the NATO mission or the UN and talk to them about human rights. I mean, they would think human rights was soft stuff, you know, let us get the security situation in place and then we deal with this human security, human rights. So you can imagine how far down the road art and culture might be to a global security practitioner or decision maker. So when it first hit me that we as global security practitioners, policymakers, our decision makers were missing something big, and that big something could be actually art and culture, I myself was puzzled. You know, I was, um, uh, I was really um, 
almost perplexed, puzzled, shocked. And the way it happened was this. It was after my PhD. So you know how it is after your PhD, you think you, you have not all the answers, but a good number of the answers. And my PhD had been about peace building and the restoration of stabilization after wars, genocides, especially how you restore justice, you know, restore the security sector, etc. And after this, I go off and work in um, across the African continent, first based in Ethiopia, then Uganda, but covering the conflicts in Africa for a major international humanitarian organization, Oxfam, as their conflict policy advisor. So what I'm looking for is what's the most effective way, what's the best way to change policymaking. And what should happen that as I'm going around from big meeting to big meeting with heads of state, with policymakers, diplomats, but also visiting you know, uh, communities who've been affected by conflict, it starts dawning on me that there's something is missing. And it was actually in the middle of the night one night that it kind of went, aha, it's the art. And I found myself puzzling over how could arts possibly be the answer? And the answer that came to me then, which I then spent, have spent the subsequent 21 years of my life, because this happened in June 2000, that I had my aha moment. And I've been unpacking what that means. But what came to me right then was that art offers a way to express whether it is for the victim of conflict, the perpetrator, the bystander, the hapless uh, you know, witness. Uh, it, it serves to express things which we as policymakers cannot do with our declarations, policy statements, laws, uh, you know, what even journalists aren't able to do, even with very evocative and poignant storytelling. And, and it's art in all of its forms. And what comes with that is an understanding of the culture from within which uh, this art is expressed and how it is speaking to the values, the deep foundations of that culture. I'll pause it over there, but this was really how it came to me 21 years ago. And then I really made an effort in every conflict area I worked in and every crisis area to see what that might mean, to go and hear the artists, to go and understand the culture, to see how that changes our way of operating in crisis when we have that understanding. Well, uh, so precisely, what is the impact and the potential contribution of arts and culture to global security? Aha, I mean, it's a big one. I could give you the short answer or the long answer. Indeed, <laughs> it was very much to answer this question that um, we undertook a whole interdisciplinary research project where we were looking at the contribution of culture, which we dissected into philosophy and ethics, anthropology, uh, religion and spirituality and the arts. And to see actually, as the responsibility to protect was becoming this major international norm, whether it was through its active defense, failed or successful, or through eschewing our responsibility to protect in certain cases where the international community felt it couldn't do anything. So actually with Tom Weiss, you know, a very, very well-known professor who's often at GCSB, very well-known in the international community, who's both a practitioner as well as a great scholar of uh, humanitarian and global uh, governance issues, we actually looked at this issue and we looked for local scholars and local artists who could from within tell us, does this really matter? Should we care about this? And I myself was privileged to write the chapter on art and in addition to directing the whole project and writing sort of the, our initial understandings and our conclusions. And what was absolutely astounding is when I began to put together what I had been witnessing in conf conflict after conflict and crisis zone after crisis zone, just focusing on art and then I'll come more broadly to culture. You see what a reservoir 
what a treasure trove there is, which which just totally escapes our attention because that's not where we are looking. You know, even when literally it's as much in our face as the graffiti on the walls of UN missions or of peacekeeping operations, telling us what we need to see, showing us what the people are experiencing and what they want from us, we fail to recognize those messages and see that they could be guiding us in what we want to do. So in short, our art can tell us what we cannot otherwise find out even through in-depth analyses of that society because it's living. It is happening then and there in front of your eyes. Art is what happens in a particular way in the situation of crisis. It can give us signs, indications that can help to guide our decisions, that can help us to retrace our steps, to readapt our interventions. And it can help us to really understand the people in whose, you know, for whose benefit and on whose behalf we are making decisions and intervening in the first place. Another question about impact in, 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 in some ways, and this time on, on, on a public or, or an audience, uh, would be how has your theater of transformation practice affected the decision makers in global security? And how is that relevant for global security? Wow, you know, well, I would need to unpack maybe very quickly what this could possibly mean, this theater of transformation. And I have to give a huge amount of credit to GCSP for that. Because even though it was 21 years ago that I discovered, you know, much to my surprise, the importance of art and culture, and made that a part of my business, you know, my to-do list when I went to any country. The last thing I imagined was that I would have to take off my scholars or policymakers' glasses and step on the other side, you know, step on stage as it were, and engage in the practice of art. And so this was my even bigger surprise, and that only happened in 2013. And it actually happened literally because I was on a peace mission to uh, Palestine. It was during the Arab Spring. I was sitting on a couple of different international boards of foundations and international organizations, which were dealing with the Arab Spring, dealing with the rise of democracy and civil society, and as well as the backlash against it. And we had one of one of the uh, board meetings was in Jordan, was the foundation of the future, the foundation for the future, working across the Middle East region. And from there, we went on this peace mission to Palestine. And there, what happened was the stories that I heard were so powerful, the, the testimonies of people, of what they'd experienced, people of totally different ages and backgrounds, that when I came back to the University of Oxford, where I'm a research scholar and, and run this, uh, this initiative, and was asked, how was your peace mission? Instead of giving the kind of normal report that you and I tend to give at the end of a, of a, you know, a fact-finding mission or a peace mission, I don't know what came over me, but I literally started reciting some of the testimonies that I'd written down and you know, rewritten on the plane back. And when I did that, it was like a valve opened up inside me. And I realized that it was all these Palestinian stories, but literally every story of people I'd met in all these conflict and crisis areas around the world. And some stories in particular, not just the ones that tore my heart apart, but the ones that gave me hope because those were the stories of the people who, despite the crisis, despite the repetition of crisis, had found a way to kind of go within, transform themselves, and in that way actually change the paradigm that was governing their society and transform their communities and societies as well. And little by little from that day onwards, which was December 2013, 
I began to enact more and more of these stories in the first person. And to my delight, when I did my first performance or recital at the United Nations, uh, Christian Dusset, who has been the very able, enterprising, and innovative director of GCSB until this, this very summer, uh, was there at the UN and said, aha, this is really something which we need in global security. But actually, the classrooms of GCSP became my um, living theater of transformation, where I would share stories relative to the topic I was teaching, but then everyone in the classroom, you know, the diplomats, the military officers, the justice officers, the police officers, the civil society people would step into these stories, apply it to their context. And that was literally seeing the impact it had then and there. And thanks to that, I've been able, you know, most of my work has not been, you know, to cultural audiences in, what could I say, in theater halls. That's been some of it, but it's really been in our settings of global security at conferences at summit and just seeing this impact, this transformative impact it has on people to witness real life, to feel a sense of oneness with these real life people that they work with and for, but then to actually realize they have that capacity for transformation themselves as global security decision makers and practitioners. And uh, indeed, as I told our listeners, I've, I've seen you do it myself. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, really something to behold, uh, to actually uh, see you morph uh, on the stage, but also on the lecture stage to and carry with such power the narrative and the performance of one particular story, then moving on to a very different one, but which has uh, an equally powerful lesson and uh, see the, the audience uh, spellbound. I, I know what you were just talking about, but uh, of course, if, if much of this performance is, uh, also happens in you know a fairly recent receptive uh, in environment. I had to ask you because, of course, you also lead others into the same activities uh, and, and, and not all performance places are safe. So I was wondering whether the, you knew of instances in which violent actors attempted to suppress the art performances that were aimed at peace mm. and reconciliation. And uh, uh, is, is there a way to, to protect the artists who are involved uh, in, in these activities? Great. Thank you for asking that question, Paul. And I, you know, there are two sets of answers I want to give. You know, one, when you ask that question, immediately what came to mind was Kosovo during the 10-year occupation period, where literally Kosovars ingeniously and very courageously organized an alternative parallel system, totally underground. So schools went underground, hospitals went underground, every service went underground because anything you were caught doing in daylight, you were susceptible to being arrested, imprisoned and disappeared, perhaps. Theatre and the arts also went underground. And it's amazing because you know, one of the case studies we looked at in our book on the responsibility to protect and the power of art and culture was Kosovo. So I had the real chance to meet several of these artists who were acting underground. And they would talk about the extraordinary danger already if they were simply coming back from a, from a recital, from a rehearsal and caught with a page in their hands or caught with a, you know, a paintbrush, the danger they were in. But actually, when the performances happened underground, you know, the cathartic effect it would have on the host of our population, but the incredible risk each single time of being caught, whether you're an audience member or, uh, or a performer yourself. So that was one that, that came to mind. And I'm sure there were many performances that were interrupted and, and disrupted. And what you must know, I mean, we all know, and we've witnessed it again with COVID, is my finding has been in every conflict, artists are the first to be targeted. 
you know, it's the poets in Algeria, you know, it was Mahmoud Darwish who had to go into exile because he was speaking for the Palestinian people. It's whichever is the art form or whichever is the individual artist or artist who most seem to be speaking the voice, expressing the grief and defiance of the people, they will be the first to be targeted. So this is indeed one of the, the reasons why you could say there's propaganda art, you know, why tyrannical leaders and regimes have known, use the art as a way to gain control over the people, but also why they've targeted and destroyed artists, you know, why they very histrionically storm into certain, you know, during Nazi regimes, fascist regimes, storm into certain performances and very publicly arrest a beloved artist in order to spread fear. I also did apply your question to myself, you know, to see have there been such instances in my life. And I know that there've probably been many and there's some of them are escaping my attention. But I'm also thinking of cases where in my own audience, uh, whether, you know, where people felt challenged and challenged me. And funnily enough, Paul, as you ask the question right now, uh, two instances came to mind which are polar opposites of each other. One was in a university, you know, the Global College, which was established by Lloyd Axworthy, one of our great, great icons of global security in uh, the University of Winnipeg. And the least expected, it was an Indigenous grandmother who was taking this course on uh, global security and justice with me. And she had an outburst at one point saying, I don't feel understood or something like this. And what was really important then was I had the presence of mind, luckily, not to take it personally, mm -hmm. not to get upset, but to create a safe space where she could express, I could understand she wasn't expressing her anger against me, you know, Ramamani in person, because I hardly look like the colonizer that's, you know, destroyed her life and her children and grandchildren's life. But it was, I was a projection of what she's experienced all this time. So I could create a safe space where she could go through that and come out on the other side. And the other was actually, it was a fabulous experience right in GCSP, where there was a very senior Pentagon officer. And in the beginning of our process, you know, where I was just, as you said, you know, going from one very different story to another in different continents. And he had this real outburst in the beginning, challenging the process. And then we had a little bit of a, of a discussion. I said, go along with it and see where it goes. And if you want to just sit back and watch, that's also fine. And at the end of the session, it was very touching because he came back and, you know, he said, I really want to make a statement that in the beginning, I felt this way. But then I realized that when one of my junior officers comes to me with an idea, I always encourage him or, you know, usually him and say, let's try it out. And I felt I needed to have the same attitude, even though this really challenged me and I didn't like it in the beginning. And I'm really glad I went through, through that because now I can really see its impact and its beneficial, you know, um, outcome for me and for all of us. So that was a, a great uh, experience. But of course, I've also had uh, times when I've been in the field working with grassroots activists where there is a real danger that if people outside knew what we are doing inside, we would be at real risk. And there have been some times where that has been the background against which we have been meeting and doing our work. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think that leads me to my to my final question. And, you know, we, we were discussing uh, how, uh, of course, artists undergo a period of training and they, they learn their craft and their art performers as well, too. But uh, we're also, of course, in the in the business of uh, talking to global security decision makers. And the question is, perhaps, you know, how do you 
articulate the teaching of this kind of very particular kind of art geared towards global security to professional artists, but also to global security decision makers. And is there something we need to do differently in, in, in what we're doing at the moment? Yeah. You know, I mean, the great thing for me is that I never went to art school. I didn't have to spend those years, you know, learning the craft of theater. So if anyone tells me, oh, you know, that's too difficult. I can't do that. I didn't get trained in it. I can say, hey, look at me. You know, I mean, if I was the least artistically talented person I had ever met in my life, and if I could do this, then anyone can. And what I see to my absolute astonishment is I've never been in a setting where I've done, you know, a masterclass, a seminar or a workshop and not seen even the most shy, the most reticent, the most hesitant of participant, whatever their standing or stature, step forward and not simply step into character, step into their own desired future, step into their worst enemy, their closest ally, person whose life they've saved, a person who's saved their life, a person who's changed their way of thinking about global security and conflict. Not simply have they been able to do that, but they've actually enjoyed doing that. They felt this expansion because the thing is that why this is so important for us and why this needs to become a part of how we are, whatever, trained, taught, as glo- you know, whichever part of global security, international relations we are in, is the moment you realize I have the capacity, the natural capacity to become Paul Valet and Paul has the capacity to become Rama Mani because we can not simply deeply hear each other. We can literally step into each other's skins. I don't like to say step into each other's shoes because many of the people we work with are for don't have shoes to step into, you know, or they had to leave their shoes behind to escape. Uh, you know, it's just two days ago that it was refugee day. So really paying homage to to refugees and people forced to flee uh, all around the world, as well as those working to save their lives and, and protect them. So um, when we realize we have the capacity to step into someone else's skin, it's not simply we grow in humanity, but imagine, you now have four pairs of eyes. I mean, you have four eyes, you have four ears, you know, you're multiplying your human potential, your human capacity to respond to any situation, because just by stepping into one person, you've doubled up. So imagine if you can then step into all the different actors, the different stakeholders in our any in any security situation, you are actually at no cost, no expensive training program, no high, you know, sophisticated technology, digital setup, whatever, which costs thousands of millions of dollars, uh, no extra military expenditure. You can actually develop the eyes, ears, capacities to realize to to uh, what is the best way to respond to this crisis situation that will not simply manage it, stifle it, but actually transform it for the longer term. Well, you know, you've been talking about the the epiphany you uh, had, which led you to uh, this practice uh, today. And uh, well, I hope that uh, today's uh, uh, discussion will also act for many of our listeners. It's been quite an inspiration. I'm afraid, you know, we could talk about this at length, but this is all we'll have time for today. So I want to thank you very much, Dr. Ramarmani, for uh, speaking with us today. It was a real pleasure. And uh, to our listeners, thank you, of course, for joining us on this podcast. I hope you will uh, return next week to hear more insights into peace, security, and international cooperation. Please follow us on Anchor FM and Apple iTunes and subscribe to us on Spotify and SoundCloud. I'm Dr. Paul Valley with the Geneva Center for Security Policy. And until next week, bye for now.